Welcome to the Code Newbie Podcast, where we talk to people on their coding journey in hopes of helping you on yours. I'm your host, Saran, and today we're talking about what it means to be a part of the software development lifecycle with Cliff Craig, Senior Software Engineering Manager at Samsung. So it's really a process of divide and conquer. Like you take the big picture, break it into slightly small boxes, and you know, iterate over each one of those boxes, and each one of those boxes would be assigned to a specific leader. Cliff talks about getting into software engineering over 22 years ago, why it's important for developers at every level to understand the software development lifecycle, and what the major stages of the software development lifecycle are after this. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So Cliff, you've been a software engineer for a couple decades, 22 years, and you've worked at some well-known companies like Microsoft, Apple, GE, even MapQuest. Shout out to MapQuest. I I like the smell of a fresh printed map. (laughs) And now you've been at Samsung for uh, a couple of years. When did you first get into coding? I've been coding ever since I was six years old, off and on. Yeah. My first experience was when my father got us a video game, the Intellivision 2, I think it was. It had this computer attachment, and you can kind of plug it in like a keyboard. You can steal graphics from the video game and write code in basic. So that's kind mm-hmm. of where I got my beginning. You know, I was trying to make my own video games. And did you study computer science? No, I'm mostly self-taught. I did take a class. Mm-hmm. I went to tech school, Satone University in New Jersey, for like two and a half, three years. And how did you end up going from that passion, that really early interest to actually landing your first job? I got lucky. I I always say I was blessed, you know, to have this career and to be where I'm at at this point in life. I was working as a file clerk in a temp agency as a temporary job, seasonal kind of deal. I think I was like on a six month assignment or something like that. I can't remember so long ago. Mm -hmm. I had been uh, in tech school, of course, like I said, still an institute and struggling. Like I was in a very... I guess you can say precarious part of my life where my ex-wife was pregnant with my oldest daughter at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was scrambling, trying to find a full-time job. And I never forget, I was sitting down at this temp agency and my job there was just to stuff envelopes and, you know, file cabinets and file things. Like I was working in the mailroom and one of the women, I guess, took pity on me and wanted to give me some busy work and mm-hmm. sat me down. She gave me a Excel spreadsheet, like hundreds of addresses, and then a Word document, like this template of like stickers they want to print. Mm-hmm. And she wanted me to type the addresses from the Excel spreadsheet into the Word document. And she thought that it would take me the better part of my remaining tenure there to do it. And I had knocked it out in like 15, 20 minutes because I was Whoa. studying Office at the time. You know, they just so happened to be teaching us Office automation at my school. And I did what's called a mail merge. And she was like, How did you do that in so, you know, little time? I thought it was going to take you like days, weeks. I was like, no, I just did a little mail merge. I explained it to her. And then from that point on, she uh, introduced me to the engineering manager there. Mm-hmm. And he took a liking to me. You know, he interviewed me and asked me you know, what my passions were. And, you know, what interested me about, pro- kind of like what you did, you know, how did you get into our program? And I told him the same story. I love video games. I want to be able to make mm-hmm. my own video game one day. So, you know, he shopped me around, tried to get me hired at different places before he eventually decided to hire me himself. And he hired me on the same day that my daughter was born. So that's how I know how long I've been Whoa. in the industry. She just turned yeah. 23 last December. Oh, so I've been nice. in the industry for like over 23 years. Yes. Wow. Happiest oh day goodness. of my life. Yeah. yeah. I got my new career. For and, two uh, reasons. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
So you got into software engineering back in the 90s then, it would be. Yes. When the industry was really in its, you know, as far as like web stuff, especially in its early stages. And yes. also even more socially homogenous than it is even now. What was it like being in this industry as a person of color in those early days? Oh, man, it wasn't. Like, I got lucky. I was the mm. only person of color in the room for the majority of my career. It mm. wasn't until most recently that I actually saw other Black people in the industry. And I'm like, wow, mm. you guys actually exist. And then, to, you know, <laughs> be on sites like Twitter and, you know, be able to communicate and, you know, network with people. You know, Black Tech Twitter is a thing. I'm like, I'm starting to find all these different resources for people who are not just, you know, Black people people from different walks of society, you know, mm -hmm. every walk of life, you know, all different types of people looking for the same thing, wanting to get into software engineering and, you know, trying to get their start. What was that experience like for you not having that community for most of your career? Was it isolating? Was it alienating? How, how did that feel? It was definitely isolating and alienated. I did feel alone, but I was driven because, you know, I've always had this passion for software engineering. Like I, I love mm -hmm. computers. I love tech. So there was nothing that was going to stop me. Mm -hmm. If anything, I felt more motivated to do more. There mm. were specific moments in my career where I felt singled out or even looked over or passed up on, you know, because mm. I would be, of course, the only person of color in the room. And early on in my career, I was sometimes doing the most, uh, doing too much, you can say. Mm. And there were moments <laughs> where I felt like, you know, I should have been outshining the efforts of my coworkers, but I wasn't. I wasn't given the recognition that I felt I deserved. But, you know, through the years, I've learned to grow with that. And, you know, I look back on those challenges as opportunities now. So now you are at Samsung. And when I think of Samsung, it definitely... I think more hardware than software, just because I think of like, you know, the phones and the devices and that sort of thing. As a software engineering manager, what kinds of things do you get to work on? So right now I'm working in TV ads. We work on an ad campaign manager and we build the whole ad experience on the Samsung smart TVs and our division is also responsible for putting ads on mobile devices, desktop. Like our oh, cool. responsibility has expanded. Like we started off just doing TV ads. It was actually started from a small group of developers. We built a business out of nowhere. Like I'd say about six or seven years ago, this business did not even exist. And we grew it into like a multi-million dollar business in like a span of a few, few years now. So wow, it's been an nice. interesting story. It sounds like it has such a big business impact as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're putting new experiences on the smart TVs. And, you know, the biggest compliment that we get is people buy our smart TVs and they see our ads and they don't recognize them as ads. Because they oh. look like part of the natural content that's part hmm. of the interface. Very cool. So out of the 23 years that you've been in tech, what would you say has been your most favorite thing that you've been a part of building? I'd love to tell this story. It sounds far-fetched, but way back in 2008, I believe, when the iPhone App Store first came out. And back then, I was experimenting with like voice-to-text and text-to-speech. And I actually built like a Siri prototype and had it Whoa. working on an iPhone. I think it was an iPhone 3G. That's cool. This was before Siri was released. Like I was working on technology from way back. Wow, very cool. So because of your wide-ranging career working at so many different companies, different types of technologies, I feel like you were such a great person to talk to about the overall development life cycle. So let's zoom out and define what we mean by development life cycle. How would you define that? It's a cycle that comprises your planning, your analysis, your design, your implementation phase, and maintenance. Mm -hmm. It's really a cycle of going through those different phases when you're implementing software, when you're you know, building some sort of software-based solution. 
And it encompasses everything we do in industry as software engineers. And we don't really think about it, but no matter what company you're working at, no matter what platform you're working on, we all follow the same cycle of planning, analysis, design, implementation, and maintenance. So you've worked at big companies for sure, huge, huge companies. And I feel like you know, if I were to imagine what the development life cycle would look like at those companies, it feels like there's probably a lot going on. <laughs> so Absolutely. break that down a, a little bit more for mm-hmm. me. You mentioned kind of the the steps very briefly, but if we can dig into that a little bit, unpack some of the the major steps of the life cycle, and then maybe some principles and, and core concepts that's helpful to know. I think it actually makes more sense to kind of ask why is it important to know sure. what this yeah. life cycle is. And mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it's important because, you know, the different phases, it's important to know which stage you're in. For example, if you're in the implementation phase and you haven't done enough planning, then you're doing something wrong. Uh, a lot mm. of times you might be in the planning phase. And this is very common, especially, you know, you're doing your sprint planning and you have a bunch of engineers talking about a specific technology solution. They're in the implementation stage, you know, in their brains, they're coding the solution real time when you're supposed to be planning. So I think a very important part of the SDLC, software development lifecycle, is knowing which phase you're in and acting accordingly. So planning is all about, you know, I guess you could call it like the requirements gathering and everything, you know, and it's important at that stage to, you know, have the right kinds of discussions. You know, you want to ask the right questions. What are we building? Because a lot of times software engineers go into this blind, they just, you know, they obsess over the details, over the technologies and the tools. And we don't even mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. know what it is we're working on. I've had so many interactions with developers over my career where they don't know how they fit in in the organization. They just know, oh, I'm just, I'm just, um, Python code, I'm working on this little solution, or I'm a Java guy, and I, I got this little quirk thing, this little library, but I don't know how this fits into the bigger picture. So it really helps to have a big scope of, you know, outside zoomed out view of what it is you're building. It also mm-hmm. helps to know what the business need is. So I like to ask the right questions, like, what is the need? What is the actual pain point that we're trying to solve? Are we trying to, you know, automate some sort of manual set of steps, or are we, you know, saving the business money by implementing a solution? Like, you know, the value added, basically. You know, when you recognize, and my scrum master will love me for this, you know, having a value mm-hmm. added statement in your JIRA tickets, you mm. always get something, yeah, what is the value added? So you want to make sure you're adding business value when you're, you know, doing your requirements gathering. When I'm hearing you talk, it sounds very similar to product development. What is the difference between, you know, product development principles, concepts, and the software development lifecycle? So product development is different because you're dealing with a physical product. Software is different because, you know, software, sometimes it can be ephemeral, it it changes, it adapts, and it follows a different life cycle, basically. Like you can update software in a way that you can't update a physical product on a shelf, basically. You know, you can just zap an update over the web and, you know, update millions of clients and, you know, not lose the sweat. Or you can deploy software and it continues to make money over time, you know, without you having to put in any additional effort. But it's very similar in the way that, you know, you're still going through the same stages, you know. Difference with software development is, you know, the implications of getting something wrong can be catastrophic because everything you do in software expands exponentially, basically. So if you release buggy software, it can impact millions of users. It can take out an entire company. It's from a buggy update. Who is responsible for the different phases of the life cycle? Like, for example, when you talk about, you know, identifying the need, identifying a pain point, a PM comes to mind, for example, or maybe someone on 
the marketing team or the sales team. It doesn't necessarily scream engineer to me in terms of figuring out what's the problem. Value add is kind of similar. These seem more businessy questions rather than kind of technical questions. And so I'm wondering when you think about the different roles that are involved in the software development lifecycle, beyond the software developer, are there other participants and other people that play a role in that journey? Yeah, there are definitely uh, key players in each stage of the phase, but I believe the entire team should be involved at every stage, basically. When you're in the planning phase, of course, the product owner or the PM has the biggest voice. You know, he's the one that's calling the shots and deciding the direction, you know. Mm. He's identifying the business need, calling out the pain points, defining the strategy, building out the roadmap. And then when you go into the analysis phase, then, you know, typically have like analysts, you know, but right, go back to right. the planning phase though, you know, you sure. still need your uh, team members, you still need your developers in that phase. Going back to those important questions I was talking about earlier, because you want to be able to ask those pertinent questions. You know, what are we building? What is the need? What's the business value? You know, we, that's part of your requirements gather, but there's also something I like to talk about, which is anti-requirements. And these are the questions that we sometimes forget to ask. You know, why are we building this? What is the cost of building this? Most times when you're building some sort of solution, there's a cost. There's a financial cost. There's a cost mm-hmm. in time and money. Mm-hmm. There may be, you know, Kubernetes pods and infrastructure to stand up, you know, cost to business in other ways. You want to understand that cost correctly. And then you want to ask the question, what is the impact? You know, it's like a negative value. What's the impact if we don't? You know, what if we don't build this? This is something that we absolutely need to build. And you'd be surprised sometimes that some of the best solutions don't require technology. Mm. And you wouldn't know that unless you were a technologist. Sometimes if you use your skills as a software engineer to not write software, you Mm. can add more value than you would be by coding a solution. And it's very easy for developers to get trapped in that too, because, you know, we tend to love our tools. We love our IDEs. Mm -hmm. We love writing code. Mm -hmm. And it's the most difficult thing to tell a developer not to write code. The best code that you write is the code that you didn't write, basically. Because it's easy to change. Easy to <laughs> or the code that you deleted. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And sometimes, you know, it, it might be something that, you know, a product owner has or, you know, a business stakeholder has some vision of something that they need. And it's not necessarily the most important thing. But you hear something or buzzword or remind you of some sort of cool technology you want to implement or play with. So you might be the biggest mm-hmm. person in that room trying to drive the discussion to a highly heavy overbaked solution because you want to play with your cool, you know, toy. You want to play with the latest uh, Next.js or you want to play with, you know, latest, greatest, you know, backend Erlang or, you know, Ruby Rails, whatever. And you're so passionate about building the solution that you lost sight of the business direction. So does it really need this overbaked solution or is this something very simple that does not require technology that can solve the problem? Okay, so let's dig into the different phases. We have planning, designing, developing, testing, and deploying. When it comes to that planning phase, you talked about how really important it is to figure out what are we doing, why are we doing it, do we need to do it at all? And if we do need to do it, does it require a technical solution? What is the engineer's role in that planning phase? What is the developer you know, doing? What do their tasks look like to contribute to that phase in the cycle? 
So the engineer developer's role is critical because they translate human thought into technology solutions. Mm -hmm. So people think a certain way and machines think differently. So they are able to bridge the divide, connect the dots, you know, identify the specific pieces of technology that might play a part in the solution, you know, estimating the amount of time it would take potentially to build out a specific solution. And they would work in collaboration with the product owner to decide whether or not do we need technology? Do we need solution A or solution B? Or maybe there's a solution C that's a hybrid between A and B, you know, some sort of compromise, you know. So the technologist, the engineer is very critical in those discussions because they have that insight. They know what tools to use, how to use them, how to connect the dots, and they can help identify the potential cost to the business along with the uh, net value added. So, you know, how much mm. is the business going to put out to build the solution? How much value is it going to add long term? How soon can we get to market with the solution? Okay, so in this stage where we're doing more translation than, you know, maybe actually coding, what tools are we talking about? If I'm a developer and I'm working in this stage of the cycle, am I like writing a, a memo? Like what, what is that? What does that actually look like in terms of the tools that I'm using? It's different depending on different companies. You know, some companies have, you know, heavy upfront planning where they, you know, they build out their roadmaps. They have like mm. what you call your engineer manager that works with the product owners, kind of estimates what the roadmap is going to look like for the next quarter, for the next half. Mm-hmm. And then they take it to their engineers and their architects and they, you know, get into a room and they decide, you know, they start going down a little bit deeper and say, try to figure out what the actual implementation might look like and which tools they would need. But in the beginning of the planning, it's mostly, you know, maybe Figma documents, some you know, rough drawings, Jira, any kind of planning tool, something that kind of helps you, you know, a lot of Google spreadsheets or whatever, Google Docs. It's mostly presentation-based. You're doing the requirements gathering. You're laying out the vision. This is what I see us building. This is the need that we're trying to fill. This is the market that the company is now trying to get into. We're trying to take advantage of this new opportunity that's emerging to find the vision. So there's not mm-hmm. a lot of technology involved in the planning and the requirements gathering. It's more or less, you know, getting the big picture, getting a scope of what we need to build if we want to build it, basically, proposing the solution. Then when you move into the later phases, which is your analysis, that's when you're getting in the room with your engineers and your architects and actually doing the grunt work of, you know, prototype. You know, sometimes there's some prototyping involved and it depends mm-hmm. on, you know, what it is you're building. Are you building front-end solutions? Are you doing a mobile app? Are you doing something for smart TVs? Are you doing something with some machine learning? There's some analysis that's involved in there. And then you would eventually move into the design phase. And in your design phase, you would have tools such as, you know, your wireframes and Figma. You would have some pixel perfect diagrams that your UI designer put together. You know, you're discussing look and feel. And that would be more for front end development. But if you're more in the back end, you'd have some system architecture mm-hmm. diagrams, you know, cloud layout of different uh, microservices talking between one another. You have maybe a Kafka, message bus, you know, you have some DB schemas, authentication, data flow, things of that nature. Again, you're doing diagrams and whiteboarding and mm-hmm. you're doing the analysis and trying to fit the big picture into slightly smaller boxes. And then mm. your architects and your tech managers, your project leads would take those slightly small boxes and break them up even further. Mm. And that's kind of what this whole picture looks like. When you talk about the software development life cycle, it's actually comprised of several mini cycles. Each one of these phases has its own cycle in and of itself. Hmm. So for example, if I'm an architect working yeah. at one of these big companies and my job is to build the back end, that's a big box. That's part of a mm-hmm. bigger picture. 
So now I'm going to take that box and break that down and, you know, do my own little, you know, requirements gathering and wireframes and, you know, diagrams and break that down into further pieces and then give it to my team leads and then have them carry out the vision. Mm-hmm. So it's really a process of divide and conquer. Like you take the big picture, break it into slightly small boxes and, you know, iterate on each one of those boxes. And each one of the boxes would be assigned to a specific leader. Yeah, because one thing I was thinking about when I was, you know, imagining and envisioning these five different phases is it feels very linear, even though it's a cycle. <laughs> it feels, yes. uh, you know, it feels very linear, and it also it reminds me of kind of the the waterfall style of product development that was really popular mm-hmm. many years ago, and now we've you know moved after that to kind of agile. And I'm thinking about you know, uh, you know, the the common thing that happens at a lot of companies, depending on the size of you know sprints, right? Two week sprints mm-hmm. deploying. Is, I mean, some people try to deploy every day, every week. When you are trying to work at that level of output, where you're trying to deploy as frequently as possible, much more responsive, and maybe Mm -hmm. not spending as much time, how does the software development lifecycle change to reflect that kind of more, at least it feels to me like in a more aggressive timeline? How does that fit in? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So it does definitely take a transformation. Once you've gotten your slightly small box and your team right. lead and you jump into a sprint, now you're iterating. You're taking mm-hmm, a small mm-hmm. piece of that vision and you're carving it out into something that can fit in a two-week cycle. You're doing a little bit of planning, like that much. You do a sprint plan where you decide how many tickets out of your Jira system you're going to work on within this sprint and you're going to iterate. And the important part of this is, you know, being able to be agile and be adaptive, adaptive to change, because as you're working, the direction and the vision might shift and the business might shift directions. And that's why you want to be able to focus on just the simplest thing. You don't want to look at the big picture. You want to do the simplest thing that gets you to the next stage. You want to have a milestone, basically work toward a tangible, achievable milestone, you know, something mm-hmm. we call a smart goal, something that's specific mm-hmm. and measurable and attainable, you know, something that, you know, you can say, I can do this one piece of the puzzle, basically. I can release this login screen or I can release this reporting page, basically. And it doesn't have everything in the big picture. It just has the smallest part that I can iterate on. And I'm doing something that's very dynamic and I'm working in a cycle. So you get down into the actual tools that we're using now. Now you're talking about actually writing code. And one of my favorite tools to obsess over is, of course, source control. You know, you want to be able to integrate your changes with other people on your team. So you have to know a little bit about source control and how to merge changes and deal with conflicts and also how to test the software both locally and in production and also in a staging environment. So you're going to need a few tools, basically. So you're going to need a staging environment, some place where everybody can combine their efforts and deploy it and test. A staging environment is something that's supposed to be as close to production as possible without actually being production. Then you have your production environment. It's the actual platform or the location or the device or devices that your application will run on. So you're going to need those two at minimum. And then you're also going to have your developer workstation, which is where you do your local testing. So it Mm -hmm. really becomes a process of now I have this objective, this small piece of the puzzle that I'm going to work on, and I'm going to implement something locally and have two more people on my team that are working along with me. And we've divided this idea into a couple of pieces. I got my piece. These other people have their pieces. How do we collaborate with one another? How do we integrate our changes? And 
I advise people to, you know, get comfortable with source control because that's one of the most painful points of developing is when you're mm-hmm. trying to check in code and then somebody mm-hmm. tramples all over your code. And, you know, you, you always have developers squabbling and, you know, arguing, oh, so-and-so rewrote my code yesterday. I had a solution. I stayed up till 10 o'clock working on it. I just got it right. And this other person came in, they trampled over my changes. So really understanding how to commit early and push often. You know, I always follow that philosophy. Commit early, push often. Always push code to remote repository so everyone can benefit from, you know, see what you're working on. That way, if you're going a different direction, you know, you can explain your direction and you can explain the challenges and people can collaborate a lot easier. A lot of times as engineers, we tend to work in isolation. We don't like to work with other people. Let me just build this whole thing in my head the way I vision it and then push it all at once and then hope it works. But that's not the right way to do it. You know, the best way to do things is, again, breaking that one piece into smaller pieces. Even your piece that you're working on, be able to work on the smallest portion of that and push it. You know, maybe it's just putting a button on the screen, get that coded up, push it to the remote repository, even open a pull request and a work in progress pull request to show people, hey, I got this working. And what that does is a number of things. It's Building transparency and trust with your team. So they know what you're working on. They know where you're going. They know which challenges you're facing. It also gives you a safety net. I can't tell you how many times developers have lost code. Oh, I worked on it. I was working on my machine, but I don't have the code because my dog ate my laptop. You know, <laughs> if you commit your code often enough, you know, you can't lose code when you commit to Git. Like, because Git is peer to peer. A lot of people don't realize that because it's peer to peer nature, it's very hard to lose mm-hmm. code and get yep, yep. if you commit and push then every developer that's pulling from a repository has a copy of your entire commit history even if you delete a branch from right. a remote that branch exists on everybody else's laptop okay so commit often that sounds like that's a pretty important principle or concept to keep in mind during the development life cycle what are some others what are some other things that really contribute to going through that life cycle smoothly and effectively I am a heavy advocate of tester and design and designing mm-hmm. from outside in. So really focusing on your requirements. You have modern tools nowadays. Back when I started, you know, tester and design was in its infancy. You had things like JUnit and, you know, JUnit tests. But now mm-hmm. you have more advanced testing frameworks. You know, you have your Seleniums, your Cypresses, your BDD frameworks. You know, your tests can be expressed as specifications. And I like to encourage developers to work from a specification and really understand what it is your, it goes back to the beginning, like what it is your building? Like if you don't know what you're building, how do you know you got it right? Mm-hmm. And you don't know yeah. what you're building unless you ask the right question. So when we're developing, you know, sometimes we're working from the inside out. We're talking about the implementation, the nuts and bolts, the low-level database schema and tables and columns that we're going to put the data in. And we haven't even asked the right question. Who's giving us the data? Where is it coming from? What is the use case? You know, what is the data flow? What is the UI flow looking like? What are the interactions with this backend API that I'm building? If you don't obsess over those questions, then how do you know you're building the right solution? Mm. That's one thing, you know, commit early, commit often, you know, always start from the outside spec, always revisit your spec, make sure you're working on the right pain points, the right problems. You're not inventing your own problems because that's something that happens often. You know, we write software for the sake of software. So try to avoid working in a bubble, you know, always come up for air, I guess you could say. I think what's really interesting about this process is it's almost a separate skill set to coding, right? There is, as, a, as an engineer, especially as a new developer, an early career developer, you are trying to learn just how to code, <laughs> just trying to figure out exactly. how technology works, 
how to write, you know, good code and how to write code that is going to be uh, effective and helpful. Now it sounds like I have to learn how to write that code within this framework, within this structure, this process, so that I'm not just writing useless code or code, you know, in a vacuum, but I'm actually helping solve a business problem, right? I'm helping to, to solve a product problem. As a new developer, as an early career developer, how do I get that practice? How do I, you know, understand the software development cycle as part of my technical education? Actually, the easiest thing to do is to pay attention to who's speaking in the room and actually pay attention to where the business is going. Figure out what problem it is we're trying to solve. You know, listen to your product owners, listen to your QA engineers, you know, pay attention to them because they have the ID division. They know exactly what needs to actually happen. Don't obsess so much. It's hard for an engineer, especially a new engineer, to pull away from writing code. But, you know, if you obsess too much over the details, you get frustrated and you get kind of stuck in a cycle of, you know, almost like imposter syndrome. I see everybody else making progress and I don't know what I'm doing. I've been spending all this time, all my effort trying to get this one button lined up and the CSS just isn't working out right and I'm frustrated. But if you can just pull away from that and some of the simple patterns I was explaining, like, you know, share your code, you know, develop in transparency, you know, don't be so opaque, you know, share your pain points, speak up in your meetings, you know, daily standups are specifically for that mm-hmm. reason. You know, you, if you're having a blocker, if you're having trouble, you know, raise your concerns. Getting back to, you know, how do I thrive with all these different ideas and concepts? It's really about, I mean, writing the code right, but writing the right code, basically. Mm-hmm. You want to get the right code that fits the solution and not focus so much on getting the code right, basically. It also kind of feels like the kind of thing that, might be hard to learn on your own. You know, it feels like the kind of thing where, sure, I can read about it, but it's always going to be very theoretical until I'm in the room with the PM, with the manager, with, you know, the marketing person, you know what I mean? Like with the right people. And I'm, you know, immersed in that business problem. I'm immersed in the user's needs. And it sounds like something that's kind of hard to get good at totally on your own before you start a job. Is that fair to say? It is. And, you know, I would suggest getting a good mentor, you know, finding a good mentor, mm. somebody that you can partner with and kind of help guide you through the process. Mm. Some of the things I suggest people look at is like, you know, their Git history, you know, look at the changes that have been committed, the pull requests that have been merged to kind of follow what other people have done on the system in the, in the project. You know, that's a good way to kind of adapt to the general team's development philosophy. Pay attention to the other engineers in the room. You know, how are they addressing problems? How are they coming mm-hmm, to their solutions? Mm-hmm. And really just being more of a listening ear, using your ears, basically listening to what's going on and being attentive to what's happening in the room. You don't have to be the sharpest engineer. You don't have to be the best with technology to fit in. As long as you can identify a gap or a hole, and it's very easy to see, you know, if you kind of come up for air and pay attention to what's happening in your meetings, you can kind of see where the needs are. And it's very obvious because sometimes the biggest holes are the places that the most senior engineers steer away from. They don't want to do the mundane tasks of documentation or, you know, bug fixing. And that's where you can, you know, as a junior engineer, dive in and actually add the most benefit. It sounds like a burden. It sounds sucky, but it actually does help build your career. You know, it helps get you familiar with the system, helps you get familiar with the errors and how things go wrong when they do go wrong what to look for when the system crashes, how to prevent it from crashing. You know, you get a history of, oh, we had this component writing incorrect data to the database and it went downstream and it caused headaches downstream. Maybe I should put some more validation up front. 
Or maybe we should talk to the back-end engineers and tell them that, you know, they need to find their contract a little bit better. Their APIs are different than what we're, you know, building on the front end. You know, can we have that communication? That right there, it doesn't involve technology. It just involves paying attention to patterns. You know, we keep having these same errors coming up, these same system problems. What can I do to help? Can I just have a conversation with somebody? I don't have to write a line of code, but I can solve a true business need just by having a conversation. Coming up next, Cliff talks about where the role of engineering manager and direct report exists within the software development lifecycle, and how you as a direct report can make sure you're aligned with your manager's priorities and make the most impact. After this. So I want to switch gears a bit and talk about being an engineering manager. Tell me about what that role looks like in the context of the development lifecycle. Yeah, so being an engineering manager is remarkably different than being an engineer. I still have had <laughs> my issues or trouble pulling away. You know, I love to write code. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like I tend to micromanage my engineers, so it's hard for me to step away. But an engineering manager my role is to kind of arrange the chairs in the office and make sure everybody's comfortable, make sure everybody's, you know, got work on their plate, working on the right stuff. You know, my job is to build the roadmap, you know, come up with the uh, technical roadmap, helping our product owner, you know, I kind of fill that gap, that divide between the product owner and my engineers because the engineers mainly talk in ones and zeros and they're, you know, product owner talks about high levels. So I need to be that voice that says, Hey, when a product owner says this thing here in a meeting, he's really talking about these three systems or these three API calls that you need to make. Almost like a team lead, defining the direction, the technical direction, helping with the technical direction. Make sure you're focused on the goals, building employee goals and objectives and performance evaluations. I'm kind of building the technical roadmap for my engineers and giving them a place to thrive, giving them a direction to go in, helping to build that career, basically. My job is to build the career of my employees, basically. So as a direct report, as an engineer, you know, who, who has an engineering manager, what can engineers do, particularly in that relationship and those one-on-ones and those meetings with their manager to really make sure they are, you know, making the most impact at their jobs, making sure that they are aligned and have the same priorities in the development lifecycle? So that alignment is critical. And it's really about being transparent of where you're suffering and not, you know, trying to hide things. You know, I'm having trouble, you know, getting code to production on time. I'm having trouble with completing my tasks because, you know, maybe my machine's slow or maybe I don't really understand the technology or maybe, you know, my computer is disconnecting when I'm in these Zoom meetings and I can't hear what's going on in the room. Mm. Or maybe I just need more mentorship in a specific area, you know, and not being ashamed to hide that. Also, paying attention to what your manager needs. Sometimes, you know, as an engineer manager, you know, we get bogged down with a ton of responsibilities. You know, anything from sometimes prototyping some code to, you know, architecting some solutions on our own and, you know, helping build the roadmap and hiring uh, new headcounts, managing new headcounts and making sure people fit in, making sure people get onboarded correctly. We get bogged down. So you might have an opportunity to say, hey. I've been working in this section of the system. I could take so-and-so and help partner with them and help them build out, you know, come up with solutions. You know, as a direct report, you can sometimes solve problems just by paying attention to your manager's pain points and seeing where he or she is struggling. 
So let's say we've convinced our audience that these concepts are really important for them to learn and understand, that they should immerse themselves in the development life cycle to make sure that they are, you know, contributing to their teams well. What is the best way for them to dig into all these different topics a little bit further? If they wanted to do some, you know, additional reading, some more understanding, are there resources that you might recommend or ways that they might be able to dig in and unpack some of this information? There are different resources. Like I've been watching some YouTube tutorials on like test-driven design and system architecture. Fireship.io, I think it is, is a channel I've been subscribed to. And they do these like 90-second tutorials on all the latest and greatest technologies and techniques. Udemy courses, uh, LinkedIn Learning. Generally, just looking for articles online. You know, be, be connected to other individuals in the uh, community, you know, places like, you know, Tech Twitter, finding other people who have been down that road before and partner with them and talk to them and figure out, you know, how they get to that level. You know, network with people. Build a network of decent people and contribute, you know, solve problems. Now, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to fill in the blanks of some very important questions. Cliff, are you ready to fill in the blanks? Absolutely. Number one, worst advice I've ever received is? You have to look out for yourself. I say that because it comes from a spirit of distrust and fear and also a spirit of selfishness. And especially, you know, as a black person, you, you hear this often, like, you know, nobody's going to look out for you. You know, you know things are going to happen that are outside your control. And I do get that, you know, sometimes you can be at a disadvantage. But that does not mean that you have to quit on humanity. I'm an advocate of, you know, helping other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Number two, best advice I've ever received is? I had this guy early on in my career tell me this, and he said, it's not your time yet. So early on in my career, I was having trouble. You know, I felt like my voice wasn't being heard. I felt like my contributions weren't being recognized. You know, the only person of color in the room, I felt like my contributions were lesser valued than other people. And I was doing a lot. I was doing a lot of extra stuff back then early in my career. And I got upset. I never forget when he told me this because I was almost in tears at one point because I was doing, I was working on this project. Again, it was like old school ads for 100 programming. I was doing all this stuff with these full color Excel spreadsheets and SQL and everybody else was writing these legacy ISAM record locking um, RPG programs. I was able to dig in and grab chunks of data, do all kinds of weird data manipulation and, you know, combining that with Java and J and I. I was doing crazy stuff basically. And he recognized where I was going and told me it's not my time yet. I didn't understand where he was coming from when he told me that. But later on, years later, I look back, I realized, you know, I was trying to do too much, you know, and that, you know, years later, fast forward years later, I realized that, yes, I did have the raw talent, but I was looking for credit rather than looking for trying to credit other people. Number three, my first coding project was about my first professional coding project would be a parts and inventory project. I was working at a lighting fixture company. It was a client server pro- program. It was a VB4, VB5 program that used, I guess, OADD or ODBC to connect to an RPG uh, mid-range server and bring, you know, inventory from the uh, database and bring it into these full-color desktop windows. It was a Windows program. And I didn't know much about installing software on Windows. I was early on in my career. I was using like Com, Com Plus building applications and getting it wrong. But it got close enough to the point where it looked interesting enough where I went from being an hourly employee at my first job to being a salaried employee. They really 
were shocked with the stuff that I was able to do in a short period of time there. So I started building my career from that point on. Number four, one thing I wish I knew when I first started to code is? You don't have to try so hard. Again, early in my career. Really? Yeah, tell me yes, more. I never yeah. heard that one. <laughs> tell yeah, me more. Yeah, I was doing a lot of extra stuff. Like I would go above and beyond. I was always like a swing for the fences kind of dude. And sometimes the simplest thing that works will get you ahead uh, a lot mm. faster. Because when you try to do too much early on in your career, you get stuck. You get into analysis paralysis. You get these big, gigantic projects or balls of code that nobody can use or wants to use. And it's too much. You know, simplification. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Don't try mm. to be the titan in the room, the know-it-all. You know, ask questions. Do the simplest thing that works. Iterate. If you can't iterate, if you're not coming up for air and asking questions and, you know, working on the very next small piece of the puzzle, then you're doing too much. And you don't have to try so hard to be noticed. You know, sometimes the quieter people are the ones that make the biggest impact. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Cliff. Thank you for having me. This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. You can reach out to us on Twitter at CodeNewbies or send me an email, hello at CodeNewbie.org. For more info on the podcast, check out www.CodeNewbie.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.